0: Well, several years ago, I almost died. My wife found me unconscious on the bedroom floor. She called an ambulance. I awoke in the emergency room. The doctor looked down at me and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And then I went unconscious again. I had an unusual medical condition called hyponatremia, which is a precipitous drop in my blood sodium level. I lost a kidney as part of the process, and uh, my brain cells under this uh, situation were taking in moisture, and my brain was expanding in my skull. Well, there's no room for your brain to expand your skull, so I had hallucinations, I fell unconscious, and then I lingered, kind of hovering over that border between life and death until the doctors were finally able to save me. I don't know if you ever come close to dying, but it's a very clarifying experience. I mean, at that moment when you're not sure if you're gonna make it another day, nothing is more important than what really happens after we close our eyes for the last time in this world. Is there really an afterlife? How can we be sure? Are we just cast into oblivion? And if those issues are important in those closing moments of life, they ought to be important to us now. You know, with the COVID epidemic, um, so many people are asking questions about death and about what happens in the life to come. 29% of Americans have either had a family member or they know someone who's died of COVID. How many of you have lost someone or know someone who's died of COVID? Yeah quite a few. Leslie and I were at a restaurant a while back, and uh, the waitress, um, we were talking to her, she started to cry. We said, what's wrong? And she said, I almost didn't come into work today. My, uh, we had a family member die of COVID. And I thought, here's a young woman, maybe 18 years old, probably never thought about death before. She's got a whole life ahead of her. Why should she think about dying? But then death comes knocking at her family's door, and now she's got questions. Now she's got apprehension. Now she's got anxiety. Now she's got uncertainty. And I think that's happening to a lot of people. Well, you know, I was a Christian as I was laying in my hospital bed, and I trusted what the Bible tells me about the life to come. But then again, I'm a skeptic by nature. My background's in journalism and law. You can imagine, put those two things together, what kind of a jerk that you, skeptic, what kind of a skeptic <laughs> that you get. And I began to wonder as I laid there, you know, Are the Bible's teachings consistent with science? Are they consistent with history? Are they consistent with philosophy? Does it really make sense? And that was sort of the seed that was planted that has now resulted in my new book called The Case for Heaven. The subtitle is A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. And I interviewed scholars and experts and scientists and philosophers and theologians to try to get to the issue, how do we know? that there really is an afterlife. How do we really know? The book goes into a lot more detail than I'm gonna go into in just this short talk, but I'm just gonna focus on three of the many areas that I investigated in terms of lines of evidence that point toward the reality that there is a world after this one. The first issue is whether or not we are merely a physical body that dies and decays at the end of life. Or do we also possess an immaterial soul that can survive our physical demise? Of course, Christian theology teaches that we have a soul that survives death. In fact, uh, I think the word soul is mentioned in the Bible almost 100 times. But there's, there's no one specific verse that uh, explicitly defines what the soul is. The Bible just kind of presupposes that we have a soul. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. And Jesus himself in Luke 23 verse 43 told the repentant criminal on the cross, truly I tell you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. That means there are two phases to the afterlife. The first stage is called the intermediate stage or the present heaven. So in other words, when we die, our soul separates from our physical body and continues to live on, either with God in paradise or separated from God in Hades. And then the second stage begins when Jesus returns and consummates history. So when we receive our resurrected body, we undergo final judgment and ultimately spend eternity in a very physical place, either heaven or hell. But critics say that, wait a minute, neuroscientists have been mapping the brain for quite a few years now, and guess what? They haven't found the soul. But I went to an expert on this issue, a neuroscientist with a PhD from Cambridge University, Dr. Sharon Diricks. and she told me emphatically that there have been no discoveries of modern neuroscience that have disproven the existence of the soul. In fact, she wrote a book called, Am I Just My Brain?, And she answers that question with a convincing, no, you're not. You are both a body and a soul, a body and a spirit. You see, our soul or spirit is the seat of our consciousness. It's the center of our introspection, our volition, our emotions, our desires, our memories, our perceptions, and our beliefs. The soul animates and interacts with our physical brain and yet is distinct from it. So while scientists can measure the electrical activity in our brain, they can't measure what's actually inside our mind, in our consciousness. The physical brain, in other words, by itself, isn't enough to explain our consciousness or our mind or our spirit. Let me illustrate that with a thought experiment. Imagine there is a woman named Mary who is the world's leading expert on vision. Oh man, she understands everything about vision. She understands how the eye functions. She understands how the optic nerve transmits signals. She understands how the brain turns those signals into images. She understands the physics and the chemistry of the brain better than anybody on the planet, but Mary has been blind from birth. What if, all of a sudden, she was given her eyesight? At that moment, as she was given her eyesight, would Mary now know anything new about vision? Well, yeah, I think she would. She could see, and that would be a big difference. As Dr. Dirichs told me, that means physical facts alone cannot explain the first-person experience of consciousness. No amount of knowledge about the physical working of the eye and the brain would get married closer to the experience of what it's like to actually see. So she said, consciousness simply cannot be synonymous with brain activity. Our consciousness, our spirit, our soul is distinct from our physical brain. So that's point number one. We have a soul that could survive our physical death. But does it survive? Does it survive? That brings me to my second point. Is there good evidence that our consciousness, our spirit, our soul, does indeed continue to exist beyond our physical demise? And I began by investigating the phenomenon of near-death experiences. This is where people are clinically dead, and yet their consciousness, their spirit, continues to live on. Now, I was skeptical about this stuff at first, until I found out there are nearly 900 scholarly articles written in scientific and medical journals on this phenomenon over the last 40 years. This is a well-researched area of modern science. Now, I wasn't particularly interested in stories from people who say, oh yeah, I died and I met Jesus. By the way, he's five foot 10, got brown eyes. I, I can't corroborate that. I have no way of knowing whether that happened or not. There are people who have made those claims and written books about it, and done movies about it, and then later said, well, I made the whole thing up. That's happened. So I don't have any confirmation of that. But here's what I learned. We do have many cases, and I talk about it in my book, many cases where there is powerful corroboration that our soul does survive our death. In other words, people are clinically dead, and yet their spirit lives on and they see things and they hear things that would be otherwise impossible for them to see or hear. Let me give you some examples. One of the most famous cases involves a medical researcher named Kimberly Clark Sharp. And it involves an out-of-body experience by a heart attack patient by the name of Maria who died in a hospital of a heart attack. Now, during the time that Maria was flatlined. She was dead. Her spirit separated from her physical body and she actually watched the resuscitation efforts taking place on her in the hospital room. And then she said her her spirit floated out through the ceiling, through the next ceiling and out of the hospital. But then it came back when she was revived and when she came back she said, oh, by the way, on on the roof of the hospital, on the third floor ledge, There's a man's tennis shoe and it's left footed, it's dark blue, there's some wear over the little toe, the shoelace is tucked under the heel and they went up to the roof and they found it exactly as she had described it. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Or another example of a woman named Pamela Reynolds. She was a 35 year old mother from Atlanta uh, in 1991, she had an emergency surgery, highly unusual surgery, because she had a brain aneurysm, bleeding in her brain. So during this highly unusual surgery, every drop of blood was drained from her head. Three tests showed she had zero brain activity. She was flatlined. Her heart stopped beating. Her breathing stopped. She was clinically dead. They also took earplugs and they put them in her ears and those earplugs transmitted a hundred decibels of noise into her. That's the equivalent of a subway train going next to you. And then the surgical instruments were covered prior to her surgery, her eyes were taped shut. And yet, she said during the surgery, she said, I was very much alive. She said, I actually watched the operation take place from outside my body. She described going through a tunnel, talking to deceased relatives, standing awestruck in the very light of God, and then being sent back into her body to wake up. And here's the corroboration. She correctly described the extremely unusual surgical instruments that were used to saw open her skull, including seeing that there was a dent in one of the surgical instruments, things she had no physical way of seeing. What's more, she accurately remembered conversations that took place at the time she was dead in the surgical suite. She remembers one nurse saying, we have a problem, her arteries are too small. And a male voice responding, try the other side. She even remembered the song Hotel California being played in the background. The Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland said this, it is hard to see how an honest seeker of truth would not be persuaded by this evidence that God, the soul, and heaven are real. Oh, and by the way, her story is far from unique. One researcher studied 93 patients who made verifiable observations while out of their physical bodies during near-death experiences. A remarkable 92% of those observations were absolutely accurate. Another 6% were almost absolutely accurate. I mean, these are verifiable observations of things people could not have otherwise seen unless they really had separated from their physical body. Another case involves a seven year old girl by the name of Katie. She was found floating face down in a YMCA swimming pool in Idaho. She had massive brain swelling. She had no measurable brain activity, zero. She didn't have a heartbeat for nearly 20 minutes remarkably later, she did make a recovery. And when she recovered, she stunned the doctors by saying, by the way, I was conscious the whole time and I actually met Jesus. Well, they thought, let's put her to the test. So they said, well, you know, why don't you try to draw for us the emergency room where you were brought when you were dead? And she picked up the crayon and she took the piece of paper and she drew in exact detail the emergency room that she had no physical way of seeing at the time that she was there, because she was dead. Then she said, by the way, one night when my body was in the hospital, I followed my family home to the house, and she was able to give specific details about what she observed. She said her brother was pushing a GIO Joe Jeep around his room. One of her sisters was combing her um, Barbie doll's hair and singing a specific song. Her mother was in the kitchen, keep cooking a specific meal, roast chicken and rice. Her father was sitting in the living room in a couch, staring into the distance. She even described precisely what they were wearing at the time, and all of the details checked out perfectly. And get this, in one remarkable study, researchers examined 21 blind people half of them blind since birth, and yet during their near-death experience, they were able to see. They saw things they could otherwise never have observed. For instance, Vicki Umapeg was blind since birth, and at the age of 26, she was in a car accident and she was left in a coma. She'd never seen lights or shadows or anything in her whole life. But in her out-of-body experience, she watched as the medical team tried to revive her. And she floated through the ceiling and saw trees and birds and people for the first time, including people who preceded her in death. And she came into the presence of Jesus. And when she was revived, her eyesight was gone once more. One medical researcher said, this is impossible according to modern medical knowledge. But not all near-death experiences are pleasant. About 23% range from disturbing to absolutely terrifying. For instance, Howard Storm, he was an atheist. He was a full professor, a tenured professor at a secular university. He was the chairman of the art department. He was taken to the hospital where he died. But he said, I was conscious after I died. And there were these really nice guys that, that beckoned me to follow them down the corridor. And so I did, and we kept walking, and we kept walking, and we walking. And as we did, they became more abusive and more hurtful, and they ended up assaulting him and attacking him, and as he put it, reducing him to roadkill. In fact, he said, there's never been a horror movie that can begin to describe their cruelty to me. And in the midst of that assault, he called out to Jesus to be rescued. Jesus rescued him. And when he was revived, not only did he renounce his atheism, not only did he become a follower of Jesus Christ, he resigned his tenured position at the university, became an ordained minister, and today is pastor of a little church in a rural community. Wow! I had changed his life. This is not just a hallucination. Of, this is life-changing. Well, as I said, I was skeptical at first about near-death experiences. I thought maybe these out-of-body experiences could be explained as oxygen deprivation or some sort of last gasp of a dying brain. But friends, none of the common objections to near-death experiences hold up when they're thoroughly examined. In fact, an article in the British medical journal, The Lancet, prestigious medical journal, confirmed that no alternative explanations can fully account for this phenomenon. It said all other theories, quote, fail to explain the experience of an enhanced consciousness with lucid thoughts, emotions, memories from earliest childhood, visions of the future, and the possibility of perception from a position outside and above the body. Friends, I believe these corroborated cases demonstrate convincingly that our consciousness, our spirit, our soul really does survive our clinical death. And here's the kicker. As part of the research for my book, I went and I interviewed John Burke, who is a researcher who studied over 1,000 near-death experiences over 35 years. He also happens to be the pastor of a wonderful church um, not far from here, over in Austin, Texas. And he, his, his conclusion is this. If we look at what actually takes place during these near-death experiences, not how people interpret them because that can be affected by their cultural upbringing and so forth. Don't forget that. Look at what actually takes place. When you do that, they are consistent with Christian theology. Listen to what he told me. He said, Lee, even though they vary a fair amount, these accounts have a common core and incredibly It's entirely consistent with what we're told about the afterlife in the Bible. And he backs it up verse by verse. Now, I'm not saying that my theology about the afterlife is based on near-death experience. It's not. I take a minimalist approach that says that based on what we can corroborate, near-death experiences, in my view, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that our soul endures after clinical death. So first, the existence of our soul makes an afterlife possible. Second, near-death experiences show that our consciousness actually does survive our physical demise. And that brings me to my third point. Let me ask you a question. If we had compelling evidence that someone predicted they would return from the dead, and then died, and then a full three days later returned from the dead, wouldn't their testimony about the afterlife be persuasive? I think so, because he would be an eyewitness to what happens in the afterlife. Well, friends, that's what we have with Jesus of Nazareth. I'm convinced that his conquering of the grave is among the best attested events of the ancient world. Not only does that make him an eyewitness to the afterlife, it confirms his claims to being the unique son of God. Therefore, he created the afterlife. So we ought to be listening to what he says about it. You know, I was an atheist for much of my life. The key thing that brought me to faith in Jesus Christ was the persuasive historical evidence that Jesus did indeed die and then return from the dead three days later and thus authenticate his claim to being the Son of God. Um, I just became, and I talk in my, I've I've written hundreds of pages on the historical evidence in my book, The Case for Heaven. I, I summarize that evidence again But I remember when I was a student at Yale Law School, one of my heroes was a guy who was the most successful attorney in the world. He was actually in the Guinness Book of World Records because as a defense attorney, he won more murder trials in a row than anybody in history. The reason I love this guy is nobody understood what constitutes reliable evidence like this guy. Nobody was able to take what looks like an airtight case against his client and find all the loopholes in it like this guy. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth and he became a member of the Supreme Court of his land. And like me at the time, he was a skeptic about the resurrection of Jesus until one day. He decided to take his monumental legal skill and apply it to the historical data concerning the resurrection and come to an informed conclusion. And he spent several years doing that. And I'll recite to you one sentence he wrote that summarized his conclusion. He said, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This from Sir Lionel Lutku, the greatest attorney who ever lived. So that means if Jesus did indeed return from the dead, he did validate his claim to be the Son of God, his view of the afterlife should be decisive, should be definitive. And what does he say about it? He says in John 6, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. I particularly like how Jesus um, reassured the disciples about the afterlife. You know, it's interesting. The Bible, for all it talks about heaven, um, doesn't have a lot of real specifics. And I think the reason is our mind can't comprehend what we will experience in the afterlife. And and it's impossible for us to comprehend it now. So so Jesus used metaphors and, and imagery To try to help us. And so when he's trying to reassure the disciples, he said essentially to them, he said, hey guys, don't worry. There's more than enough room for you in my father's home. He's using a metaphor of home. To reassure his disciples. Think about that. I don't know if you've ever been abroad, maybe in a third world country, in a a difficult area to live and and you're living for a long time out of a backpack and and, uh, you're eating foods that you're unfamiliar with and things are uncomfortable and things are difficult and you you begin to long for home. You begin to have homesickness and when you finally get back home and you walk into your house and you crawl into your own bed, it's such a place of warmth and security and, and love and That metaphor of home is what Jesus uses to help us get a glimpse of what heaven will be like. It'll be like home, except this is not our real home. We're just passing through this world. We're gonna spend a lot more time in that home than we are in the homes we have in this world. But there are a lot of misconceptions about heaven, and my book deals with those. One of the big ones is that heaven is an ethereal experience. That we're up in the cloud someplace that is purely a spiritual place where we're kind of ghostly souls who spend every waking hour singing hymns. Actually, heaven is a very physical place. Heaven, in fact, is not some far-off place. It's here. In my book, I interviewed a famous Anglican scholar named Scott McKnight. And he said to me, he said, Lee, heaven is the complete renewal of our world. A very earthly place, a physical place, not just for spirits or souls, but for resurrected bodies designed for the kingdom of God. He said, John says in Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. In other words, McKnight said, this world will resemble our present earth but it will be a transformed place for transformed people. All of creation will be set free and turned to God in praise. It will be creation on steroids, the way it was designed to be. He said the Hebrew word for good is tov. He said, so whatever is truly tov about our world today will be enhanced in the new heaven and the new earth. It will be a place of celebration and music and songs and festivities and festivals, and then he added it with a wink, and every year, the Chicago Cubs will win the World Series. <laughs> I'll tell you, in all my research on heaven, I came upon one quote that spoke to I don't know why, but it spoke to me more than any other. It's from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 1800s. And he said this, the very glory of heaven is that we shall see him, the same Christ who once died upon Calvary's cross, that we shall fall down and worship at his feet, nay, more, that he shall kiss us with the kisses of his mouth and welcome us to dwell with him forever. Have you ever imagined Jesus welcoming you with the kisses of his mouth to dwell with him forever. It'd be an eternal place. Revelation 21, 4 said, "'God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. "'There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, "'for the old order of things has passed away.'" Indeed, the Bible tells us, as I said earlier, we can't even comprehend what it's gonna be like in the world to come. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has even conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Well, I mentioned that one of the people I interviewed for my book was John Burke, this pastor from Austin, Texas, who over over 30 years had studied a thousand near-death experiences. And um, we're actually producing a documentary on the book, The Case for Heaven. It's going to be in movie theaters um, in the coming uh, March. Um, And so we've been filming this documentary over the last several months. And I want to show you just a little clip from that documentary where we interviewed John Burke, where he discusses how his view of heaven has evolved from this research he's done over the last 30 years. Friends, the best news about heaven is that it's real. The worst news about hell is that it's real. But the greatest news of all is that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty we deserve for the sins that we've committed and offers forgiveness and eternal life. He paid the price of heaven. He offers it as a free gift of his grace to anyone who wants to come to him in repentance and faith, an experience in eternity of no pain, no sorrow, no heartbreak, a place of adventure and joy and satisfaction and love in the very presence of God where every year the Chicago Cubs are going to win the World Series. But let me end with a question. What if tonight in your home you have what happened to you, what happened to me a few years ago? And what if your spouse finds you unconscious? And what if you wake up in the emergency room and the doctor looks down at you and says you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying? How confident would you be that if you close your eyes for the last time in this world, you would open them in the presence of God forever? Do you know for sure? Do you feel confident? Or do you have a sense of anxiety or apprehension or confusion? Friends, let me help you clear that up. Bible says, but as many as received Jesus as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, if you believe as best you can, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And if you've received his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, he will fling open the doors of heaven for you forever. And he will greet you with the kisses of his mouth to dwell with him forever. So let me give you an opportunity to make sure. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step to receive that free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, just pray these words in your heart. God will hear you. Just pray, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the son of God. You proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious. I'm a sinner. I know that. And I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive your free gift of grace, your free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you for enduring the cross so that we could be reconciled for eternity. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live, because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven. Whenever a sinner repents, receives forgiveness through your Son, we celebrate with those who have uh, taken that step just now. We pray for those still on the journey that the day will come when we can celebrate their rebirth as well. We thank you for the rest of us who may have been your followers for a long, long time. Thank you for the confidence that we have that we will spend eternity with you in a place beyond our ability to comprehend how beautiful and wonderful and adventurous and joyful it will be. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless y'all. Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.